So my question as we prepare ourselves and we get into chapter 4 of 1 John, my question is, have you ever done something or said something, and at that moment you realized, oh no, I have become my father, or I have become my mother? Are you with me in that? Uh, my mom and dad are both teachers. My mom was a remedial math teacher for years, and my father was a special ed teacher early on, and then ended up getting a, becoming a college professor. So my dad used to pray that I would become a teacher, or would, would, would hope that I'd become a teacher, and I don't think this is what he expected. But, uh, but nonetheless, I, sometimes I'm teaching or talking, and then I'll see my dad or in my mind and go, wow, I am my mannerisms. And certainly my hairstyle, uh, <laughs> genetic, inherited. Uh, but you know, we, whether we like it or not, we become our, we are our parents' children. Again, some things are good that we've gotten. It, it could be, maybe you like the nose you got from your mother or the ears you got from your father or the athleticism or the intelligence or whatever it is. There's things that we get. Some of them we like. Some, maybe it's a temper you got, you inherited or some other thing that you don't like. But the reality is, we resemble our parents. See, coaching soccer for me, seeing kids and then meeting their parents going, oh, now I see. Now I see the resemblance. Why do I bring that up? Well, in 1 John, uh, John, of course, is the apostle of love. He's a young, young man when he's a follower of Jesus. And he is, it refers to himself, he's the writer of the Gospel of John, and he refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And John is really jazzed about the fact that Jesus loves him. I mean, it means the world to him, so much so that he writes more about love than, and talks more about love than Jesus does. His, his letters are filled, 1 John, filled with discussion of the love of God and what that means for us. And so now you're saying, oh, pastor, another sermon on love. Well, I, I hope you're not saying that because it's really super important He's writing this letter at the end of the first century, 95, 100 AD. We're 65, 70 years from the resurrection. So lots of time has passed. It was parents that got saved, and then there's kids, and then there's grandkids that generation to generation. We're a few generations out. And things have really started to soften in the Christian church by that time. John is pastoring as an old man. He's pastoring the church in the city of Ephesus. And, and he writes this not, it's not a typical letter. He doesn't say, you know, John, the apostle of Jesus to the, uh, to the church in Ephesus. And then he, it's not the typical standard format of a letter. So some say it's more like a sermon that he's preaching, just in written form. I think it's in some ways an expose. It shines a light on some things. He's not saying anything new. Again, I would suggest you read the whole letter, but John is not telling them anything new. And you find out as you've been around the Christian world, the church for long enough, you find out there's nothing new. You're not going to come here on a Sunday and hear me tell you something new. All we're going to keep doing is reminding ourselves of the old things that we haven't gotten right anyway and that we forget. And so today's message, today's preparation is just a reminder about what it means to be a Christian. And when you boil it down, he's not saying anything new because what he's already told them, what we already know, 
it can't lose its edge for us. And so in some ways, we get so used to hearing the same things, we get so used to saying the same things that they lose their edge. The words become meaningless. Christianity in John's time had become empty in a way, an actionless and meaningless verbal profession. People were in love with the world and not with God. They claimed one thing but did something else. They, they, they talked the talk, but they didn't walk the walk. Can you, can you see how this would relate to our day and age today, to our time? So John challenges them. He says, look, if you want to talk the talk, then you need to walk the walk. He challenges them about lying, lying to themselves, lying to uh, the other people, uh, and lying to God. You see, the talk of the Christians in the, t- the day that John is writing, in that first century, the talk had become very cheap and actions did not line up with words. How many of you grew up in a house like that, where maybe your parents said they were Christians, but then what the, the, the actions at home, the life at home did not match what you were hearing as a young kid in church and that caused some problems. I, I meet people, some will say, oh, you got to come talk to my friend. I do, why? Oh, they are really angry about God. Then you need to talk to them, pastor. So I'll say, okay, I'll, I'll talk to them. And, and as I begin to talk to them and they are just expressing being angry and I'll say, okay, who was the pastor, your dad or your grandfather? Which one was it? Because they, get a, they got a message at church. They saw one person there and at home a different person. And it really, um, it causes some problems. So as we talk about 1 John 4, recognize there was a serious disconnect that John is addressing, and he's reminding them of what it's supposed to look like to be a child of God. The main themes of 1 John are light and love. Light and love. And, and why does this compare to me asking you about your parents and how you resemble them? Because we resemble those who gave birth to us. You can't help it. They pass on their nature to you. When a person is born again, it's a supernatural event. And God passes on his nature to his children. And the definitive marker of the nature of God, of the new birth, is not speaking in tongues or not that you change your clothing or you change your hairstyle or you eat different kind of food. The definitive marker is love. And you cannot fake that. The kind of love that we're talking about, the kind of love that God gives is not a love. Other stuff you can fake. You don't need to be spiritual to change the way you dress and not eat, you know, meat on Friday nights or whatever else it might be. Doesn't doesn't take any spiritual, supernatural thing. But to love people, come on now, church, that's supernatural. I mean, to really love people. You know what I mean? I'm saying to really love people, not just to say you love people, because that's the problem. We say, well, we love, we're great at that in Virginia, aren't we? We're the Southerners, the Southern, you can, you can, really put someone down and say, bless your heart. You are really stupid. Bless your heart. And we just get, we just send people go, huh? What is that? Uh, was that a compliment or not? What? <laughs> and so we can say things. Uh, and, and what we're talking about is, is again, it's about the issue of, of real, genuine, godly love. So I would, there's so much in these first few chapters, just look at chapter one for a second. I want you to see why John is even bothering to write. Love had ceased to mean love. You know, they, they would justify 
their actions, their loveless actions at the church at that time, just like in the church at our time. We can say, I love you, man, but, and then do something completely loveless. I love you, but, and, and that's what's happening. People would say, I love God or say, I love you. But John is saying, but you're lying when you say that. You don't really experience that love. So he says in verse the three, he's talking about, you know, Jesus and his life, that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us. Koinonia, that's intimacy. That's communion. Not this, this communion is real intimate relationships with each other. Beyond superficial, beyond we're, we're afraid to get close to each other. So you can have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. So my hope is that after we talk, after we leave First John and leave the community table, that you'll leave here with man just crammed in joy. Who could use that today? Anybody could came and you could just use some joy today? Absolutely. So on over to chapter four. I'm just going to roll through some passages. By the way, chapter two uh, talks about uh, the, you know, if you say you, you know him, uh, then you keep his commandments. And, and you love your, you, you love, you can't say you hate your brother and say you love God. These things are mutually exclusive. And we've been talking in Galatians about commandments. You know, well, you're not saved by keeping the law and those kinds of things. And, and John is talking about keeping, you know, if you, if you love God, you, you keep his commandments. Well, what are his commandments? That we do what, church? That we love one another the way he's loved us. But, and it's easy to say, harder to do, but I went through just briefly, I'm gonna list these in quick, quick succession. I went through the Sermon on the Mount, best sermon ever preached. And I pulled out of it some of the commands of Jesus. Would you like to hear them? Tough, you're gonna hear them anyway. Hang with me. This is from Matthew 5, Matthew 6, Matthew 7. Do you want the verse references or should I just, I'll give you the chapter and then you can read it. Matthew 5. Here's some of the commandments from Matthew 5. Rejoice and be glad when you're reviled. Anybody keeping that commandment? Matthew 5 again. Let your light shine before men so that people see your good works and glorify God. If you're angry, leave your gift at the altar and be reconciled to your brother. It's a command. Be reconciled. You know, leave, take, hold on to your offering. Hold on to your tithe, whatever it is you got. And if there's someone that you've been angry at and you know you're angry at them and you're harboring that, before you come to the communion table, go find that person and be reconciled to them. Now, you may not be able to do that today. And I would say if you come with that in your, come to the table with that in your heart, that I need, there's a relationship and it's not right and I need to reconcile it. So that's, a, that's Jesus. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Turn the other cheek, go the extra mile, give to him who asks. Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. How you doing so far, church? All of this goes back to love God and love your neighbor. This is just expressions of the same commandment. Lay up treasures in heaven, don't worry and seek first the kingdom. That's Matthew 6. Matthew 7, don't judge, remove the plank from your own eye. We love that one, don't we? Because here's the problem. When I got a plank in my eye, I mean, plank is a, is a piece of, it's a timber and it's in my eye. I can't even, my depth perception is gone. I can't even see clearly to get the thing out. You know what the cool thing about that is, is I got to go to somebody else and say, can you help me get this plank out of my eye? 
And then, see, once you've gone through the pain of identifying there's a plank in my eye, hello, everybody else is telling you there's a, there's, it's, something's not right, Steve. You're not seeing things clearly. There's a big, huge piece of timber in your eye. Then once you go through the pain of, of, uh, uh, and the honesty of acknowledging that, then you see someone else with a plank in their eye and you go, oh, poor thing. Oh, I know how that feels. And you don't run around pointing out, you're, you're much slower to run around pointing out everybody's stuff to them because you know your own stuff. So those are some of the commands from, that would be connected to Jesus. Now, chapter 3, John talks about less talk and, and more action. It's one thing to say you love God and then see an, as someone in need. How, does, how do you shut up your heart from them? Let's, let's love not just in word and in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Some of you know the passage. And then we get to chapter 4. Let's look at verse 7. He says, beloved, I like that. John is a loving guy. He's not just talking about love. He's telling them, man, you are loved. Beloved, people that are loved, let us love one another for love is of God. It it stems from God. It comes from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God for God is love. So you've heard these before. You've heard these things uh, most likely uh, in, in your Christian life. So all he's saying is, look, when you talk about the character of God, love is the essential character of God. That's it. He says, love is of God. When you experience the, the sad, you know, not, not the world's love. There's a different, the love of the world is, I'll love you for what I get from you. I'll love you when I uh, get, when, when I'm pleased with you. The love of God is, I love you because it's who I am. And I don't know if you, if you, you can make that distinction in your own life. I don't love because it's what I have to do. The minute you put, the minute you try to, well, okay, pastor, I want to love people. Tell me how it looks. Now we start getting into law. Let's, let, the minute you start to quantify and qualify what love is, you ruin it. What does love like, look like in your marriage? Well, if you do this, 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 A, B, C, D, that, okay, I can do A, B, C, D. Then you're not loving anymore. Then, you, then you've ruined love. There's no law. There's no set of rules for love. So, so this is the love of God. It's the nature of God to be loving, to be sacrificial, to uh, not regard whether you're lovable or not. See, that doesn't matter to God. Matter of fact, you aren't. That's what chapter one is about. It destroys your self-image of somehow you're lovable and it's all those other people that need God's love. See, you'll never, as, as long as you hold on to the, to your self perception that you are a lovable person, you'll never really enjoy the love of God. Cause you'll spend your whole life trying to remain lovable, trying to fit and meet all the expectations. And you'll, you'll only know a God who loves you when you act right. And you'll never rest. You'll never rest in the love of God that loves you every moment of every day and actually enjoys you. I look at my own, I, I, my, I enjoy my children. Isn't that a blast to enjoy your children? And if I'm a human father and I can enjoy my children, how much more do you think God wants to enjoy his children? So let us love one another for love is of God and everyone who loves is, do you see the word born? That means fathered, to be fathered by God. This is what it means to be born again. I don't know what you learned, what the, the 
tenor of your family growing up was the tenor of your father. But we learn a different thing about our heavenly father. You know, Jesus tries to explain being born again to Nicodemus, right? You've read it in John chapter three. You know, he says, look, Nick, I know you're religious. I know you, you know the Bible, but unless you're born again, you're never going to see, you're never going to see heaven. And Nick is like, what? What are you talking about? You know, I got all, I, I do all these religious things and born again. What are you talking about, Jesus? How can a guy be born again? I can't crawl back into my mother's womb. He's not talking about natural birth. What kind of birth is he talking about? Spiritual. It's a supernatural thing. And so people want to say, well, pastor, I don't know if I've been born again. Can you explain it to me? I can't. I've tried. I can't. Look, in John 3, does Jesus explain how it works? If you've read it, say no. He doesn't explain how it works. He says, look, Nick, I can't really explain it to you. I know you want to understand it, crawl back in the womb, be born again. That's not what we're talking about. Let me give you an illustration. He says, I want you to look at those trees. No, don't look at the trees out there now. Pay attention here. I want you to look at the trees on a windy day. Yesterday was a good windy day. And I want you to watch them blowing. Now, what's causing them to move? You'd say, the wind. How do you know? Can you see the wind? Can you smell the wind? You can smell what's downwind. (laughs) But that's not the smell of the wind. So how do you know it's there? How do you know the wind exists? How do you know wind happens? You see the effects. How do you know you're born again? You see the effects. It's what Jesus says to Nicodemus, I can't explain it to you. I can't explain to you how it works. But here's what I know, that when it happens, it leaves a mark. And that mark is not becoming religious. That mark is love growing. It's the love of God growing in your heart. And, and, and that's why John is bringing them back to the simplicity. William Tyndale said, for the loveless Christian to profess, profess to know God and have been born of God is like claiming to be intimate with a foreigner whose language we cannot speak or to have been born of parents whom we do not in any way resemble. He goes on, just a couple more minutes here. Uh, in this, the love of God was manifested toward us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the, the fancy word here is propitiation. It just means satisfaction. So when it comes to our relationship with God, we worry, we worry about our ability to be loved. If I don't do the right things, God says, look, my love takes care of and covers your sin. My love forgives, and it's safe. And that's why John can write down farther. Look, look at verse, um, verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us in that way, if God loved us in the way that he was willing to give the best that he had and to be and, and out of his satisfaction for, and be satisfied for our sins, then we also ought to love we ought to be satisfied that God is satisfied regarding that person's sins who you hate. You aren't satisfied about their sins, but God is. You're holding it against them, but God isn't. God continues to say, I care more about our relationship than how you've hurt me. I care more about my relationship with you than any way you've offended me. That's the kind of love of God. That's the love that holds families together. That's the love that people are looking for when they come into the church, isn't it? When we say, oh, we're Christian, we we really love people, bless their hearts. Drop down 
2, verse 12. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love has been perfected in us. People don't see God, but they see you. They see us. They hear how you talk about each other at the coffee shop. They hear how we talk about each other over lunch at the Dogwood or at El Vaquero, wherever you are. They see how we treat each other. And that, so people don't see God, but they see us. People you work with, just out of curiosity, people you work with, if they didn't know anything, anything, anything at all about God, would they look at your life and say, wow, God must be, the dominant factor of God must be love. Would they see that from our lives? And Paul, uh, excuse me, John is just trying to get us to be honest with ourselves, isn't he? He's not trying to condemn. He's just saying, let's be honest about who we are and what it is we've stepped into when we became Christians. And it wasn't religion. We stepped into a world that revolves around love. Mother Teresa said, love until it hurts. And pretty soon there's no more hurt, just love. Mother Teresa, I'm just quoting her this morning. I'm not sure why. She said, we are a, uh, a writing, we are a, a tiny pencil, a writing pencil in the hand of a loving God. Or excuse me, we are a loving pencil in the hand of a writing God. And he's writing a love letter to the world. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love has been perfected in us. By this, we know that we abide in him. How do I know that I am in Christ and in God and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the father has sent the son as the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him. So it's not just what we do, it's what we say. Those things go together. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. You just, you can run, but you can't hide. At the end of the day, you want to say you have an intimacy with God? It, it's, going to be, it's going to be shown because you're going to abide, remain, continue in a, a loving, and this is not an obligatory love. You know, sometimes again, we say, well, I'm loving, I'm a Christian, so I'm going to love people by golly if it kills me. And it might. And you got the sourpuss face because you know you're supposed to, but you don't feel like it. You don't feel it. And so you're going through the motions, uh, doing an obligatory thing, and everybody else looks at you and go, well, you know, you're just being a hypocrite because you don't really love that person because you're trying to do God's love in your own strength. But when God gets a hold of your life, and I'm not saying, you know, every, we don't, you know, I don't walk in the spirit every day. I want to but the flesh gets a hold of me sometimes. Are you with me? We recognize that battle that goes on. I know when the spirit is winning. How do I know when the spirit is winning? Because I love people. And I, and it's, and I don't have to work it up. There's a draw. Is, the, is the, the central dynamic of your life to be drawn to people for their benefit with the love that God gives. That is the central element of the Christian life. And, and that's what John is reminding us of. One more thing and we'll, we'll come to the table. Look at verse 17. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love. How much fear is there in love? There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, tosses it out the door, says, get out of here. Perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love him 
because he first loved us. So we don't love him because we're afraid not to love him. We don't love him because we're afraid of what he's going to do to us if we don't. If we don't act right or don't do it right. We love him because he first loved us. And what does that love look like? That is a love that knows you, knows everything you've done, is satisfied over your sins. God is not worried about, angry about, troubled about your sin. Just said, Jesus is the, sa- the satisfaction. That's what we're coming to the table to remember. God is, when it comes to your sin, when it comes to the way you failed, God is satisfied. God says, no, I look at the cross, I'm satisfied. Do you believe that? If you spend your life afraid of God, which most people do, afraid of making her, I meet Christians, they're afraid to do anything because what if I do something wrong? What if it's, I'm praying about God's will, what's God's will, what if I get it wrong? And you're afraid that God is going to condemn you. And you see, you know, you're never going to experience the love of, an, of a God who has put all of his condemnation on Christ. He is free. Can you set God free to love you already? Can you just do that favor to God? Let him love you. Let him love you right where you are. Timothy Keller, Tim Keller, said to be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense, humbles us out of our self-righteousness, and fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw at us. So God's love is not a denial of who we really are. It's It's a loving us despite who we really are. And that's when you get into the realm of real godly love, is I know how ugly you can be and I still love you. Do you see how relationships become safe when that kind of love is there? That means in a, in a relationship, there is nothing you can do to make me not love you because my love for you is not based on your action. It's based on my nature or the nature of God in me. The source is different. The source is not my pleasure. The source is my identity. I can't not love you because God can't not love you. And there's no fear in that. Do you know how freeing that is? Do you know how freeing when you don't, do you know how many people are afraid of God? What if he, if God only knew who I was? He does. Interesting, love and fear are opposites. We think love and anger, but biblically it's love and fear because people that live afraid can never love. They're always afraid. They're afraid to get hurt hurt happens. When you love, come on church, when you love, you're going to get hurt. You're going to get hurt. But there's always this fear, but you can't stop it because it's who you are. (laughs) So do you think Jesus's love hurt him? You think he experienced pain in the cross? I used to tell people, I pray that if someone is nailing me to the cross, that I would bleed love. That's my prayer. If you nail me to the cross, may I bleed love. That's what Jesus did. It's not just the, the pretense of love. Uh, it's, it's actually feeling and experiencing the safety of God's love. And then when you get a sense that God really loves you, then you become free to love others. And that's when things really begin to change. Do you know what I'm talking about? Fear involves judgment, involves punishment. You know, with each other in the, in the body of Christ, you know, we're coming to the table. We're going to talk about the body of Christ, the the night before he's crucified. 
He's not thinking of himself. He's thinking of his disciples. He hosts a dinner and he serves them. He washes their feet. And he says, this is my body broken for you. As often as you do this, do it in remembrance of me. This is the blood of the new covenant. And that's the cool thing about God's love for us. Is this, is this based on the fact that Christ has opened the door for God to love us and be for, for us to be forgiven? It's not based on my behavior. It's a new covenant. See, a covenant is where love becomes safe when there's a promise made. And that promise is, that God has made is a promise of love. God has promised that he will love you unconditionally. And he can keep that promise because all of your sins have been satisfied by Christ. It's done. It's done. And so we take the body, we, we take these things into ourselves and you're meant to internalize these truths. When you eat that, it becomes part of you. When you drink that, it becomes part of you. And you're meant to understand that when, that when we talk about God's love, you're, you're meant to internalize that. Fear disappears. Peace begins to set in. Your identity is safe. Your life is safe. Listen, church, you're going to be okay. Are you with me? See, fear, 2 Thessalonians 1.9, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, listen, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. We talk about judgment and the fear of judgment. The fear is I might have to, you might have to, someone might have to live eternally if God is love and if God is light and if God is truth. Imagine living in eternity in the absence of love, any kind of love, in the absence of light, in the absence of truth, devoid of all those things. Do you know what darkness in 24 hours, if you lived in darkness for 24 hours, you would go bonkers. They've done studies on that. People go nuts without light. And without love, could you imagine? And that's hell. And that's a choice to say, if you reject God, and if you reject his son who life is in, then you reject truth, you reject light, and you reject love. But in coming to the table, you're, you're saying, I accept, I receive, I want to walk in and abide with God through Christ in his love. And that means you will be transformed to love one another. And that's the mark of a real Christian life.